just to add to the welcomes, it's good to see uh, uh, John, Brother John Murdoch here from Bundaberg. Uh, yep. And uh, welcome to you. It's good to see my grandchildren here, Jackson and Chloe. Welcome to you. Um, you wonder why my grandchildren have got blonde hair when their grandmother is dark. Obviously, they got their hair colour from me. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11 are some of the most difficult passages in Scripture. But it, when you look into them, you discover that they contain some truths that we really need to grasp and that we really need to grapple with. And so just a bit of a forewarning there this morning, folks. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be easy for us, but I do believe that there are things in this passage which will be very, very helpful to us. And so let's, uh, let's get to work. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that in his ministry as a Jew, he had a particular concern for the Jewish people, the people of Israel. In the course of his own evangelistic ministry, whenever he would go into a new area, he'd always go to the synagogue first. He, was, he would always start there, but repeatedly he was rebuffed. Yes, there were some Jews who responded to the message of the gospel, but as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected it. Just read through the book of Acts and see the national rejection of the gospel by the nation of Israel. And so as time went on, Paul came to the conclusion that he really needed to concentrate on getting the gospel to the Gentiles because his own people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were not responsive to the gospel. And this posed tremendous problems. The first problem was this, that it would be perfectly understandable if the apostle Paul sat down one day and began to think to himself, you know, the people of Israel are God's chosen people, they're God's special people, and of all people, they should respond positively to the message of the Messiah, bringing about salvation. But the chosen people of God are not responding to the message. I wonder if I've got the message wrong. Did you ever think that perhaps Paul might sometimes sit down and wonder about that? You think, well, no, Paul would never do that. Well, John the Baptist did. There was a point in John the Baptist's ministry, towards the end of his ministry, actually when he was in prison, when he sent his disciples to Jesus and asked the question, Lord, uh, are you the one who we've been longing for, or should we look for another? Are you the promised one? Or have, we, have I been wrong about you? Now, any uncertainty in Paul's mind would have been exacerbated by his opponents, because they were constantly challenging and questioning his credibility. They were saying, in effect, Paul, don't try to tell us that you are an apostle of God sent forth with his message, because if you were an apostle of God, then the chosen people of God would welcome you. The chosen people of God would affirm you, but they are rejecting you, so you're not credible. Not only that, but they also heaped scorn upon his message. It wasn't just his credibility, it was the veracity of his preaching that was being questioned as well. The Jewish people of the Old, uh, steeped in the Old Testament had a principle, came straight out of the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. 
And at the centre of Paul's gospel was Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Paul claimed, who had in fact hung upon a tree. And the Jewish mind, that was an impossibility. It was impossible for them to think of their Messiah as being cursed. Therefore, Paul's message, as far as Jewish people were concerned, was unacceptable. So the Apostle Paul was really up against it. The Jewish people were questioning his credibility and they were rejecting his message. But the underlying issue is this, that the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are still the chosen people of God. Therefore, how could they reject the message? Therefore, how could they reject the messenger? It must be that the messenger is wrong, or it must be that the message is wrong. And the Apostle Paul says, no, neither the messenger or the message is wrong. Rather, it is possible that the nation of Israel is wrong. And rather than reject the message and reject the messenger, the nation of Israel is rejected and they've been put off to the side for the time being and this is the big point of this chapter this is the big point of this chapter now seeing we've got a few minutes left let's just amplify this a little bit further notice first of all in the first three verses we see the the heart of Paul demonstrated The Apostle Paul really opens his heart. He says there in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now Paul is really laying laying it on quite thick there. I mean, we know Paul. If Paul had said merely, I'm telling you the truth, we would have believed him. If he had said, I'm not lying, folks, we would have said, absolutely, great, get that. If he had said, my conscience confirms what I'm saying, we'd say, great. And if he said, I'm speaking by the Holy Spirit, we would have understood that. But he doesn't take one of those phrases. He takes all four of them, puts them together. Because what he's really trying to show us is he's really concerned. He's deeply concerned that we would understand the truthfulness of what he's about to say. What does he say? Verse 2. I have great heaviness. And continual sorrow in my heart. And that's a little bit strange that Paul would say that. Because he's just finished chapter 8. Where he arrives at this glorious crescendo. Where he's overflowing with praise. He's ecstatic with joy. As he considers the permanence of God's love for him. And the security of his salvation. He ends chapter 8 on a high. And then suddenly chapter 9. He comes out and says I have great heaviness. And continual sorrow in my heart. You might say, well, Paul, you know, come and make up your mind. Are you as high as a kite or are you full of great anguish and continual sorrow? And he says, yes. Both are true. Both are true. And this is a strange anomaly about the genuine Christian. A genuine Christian is someone who has untold delight in his or her heart, because of what they've discovered about Jesus Christ and the tremendous assurance and the overflowing joy which has been born in their hearts. But at the same time, if they rightly understand the gospel, they've got this tremendous burden, this tremendous concern to those who haven't responded positively to the gospel. In fact, if you come across a Christian who's always flippant, who's always ecstatic, 
is always interested in how good God's been to them and yet show no concern whatsoever about the Great Commission and no concern whatsoever about evangelism and no burden for the plight of the lost and no concern about how they're going to reach them. If you come across such a Christian, you have to wonder how deeply they understand the gospel. Let's face it, folks, if the gospel speaks about the blessedness of those who have responded positively to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it also would highlight the awful condition of those who are yet to respond positively to the gospel of Christ. And this is Paul's concern. And his concern is exacerbated by the fact that it's his own people that we're talking about here. So concerned is he. That he says in verse 3 that I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And what he's saying there is if it were possible for me, Paul says, for me to trade in my salvation in order that the Jewish people would be saved, then he says I'd gladly do it. And that gives us a great insight into the heart of Paul, doesn't it? It gives us great insight into what made him tick. Of course, Moses expressed a similar sentiment many years before. But then Paul speaks with tremendous regard concerning the Jewish people, the Israelites. God's special people on the centre stage of what God is doing in the world and their unique privileges Paul enumerates in verses 4 and 5. Look at what he says about them in verse 5. These are those to whom pertaineth the adoption. They have been uniquely chosen by God out of the nations of all the earth. They have been chosen by God to be in his family and through them he would accomplish his purposes in the world. Secondly, he says to them pertaineth the, the, the glory, the divine glory. They were the ones who in the wilderness had the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of cloud by night, the Shekinah glory of God that was present with them in the wilderness, tabernacled with them, dwelt amongst them. Thirdly, theirs was the covenants. They were the first ones to discover that God would have a personal relationship with his people. On a, there was an int, uh, he would be intimate with his people. He would have an intimate relationship with his people, just very similar to the, uh, the covenant of marriage. Fourthly, they were the ones who were given the law. All the other nations, all the other people of the world, they had their own ideas. They drummed up their own ideas. But Israel alone, out of all the nations of the earth, received their laws from God himself. Fifthly, they were the ones who had the service of God. The temple worship it was full of typology. It was full of significance, not just about who God was, but what God would accomplish in the world through the finished work of Christ. Sixthly, to them was given the promises. No other people received promises from God like the nation of Israel did. And it was through the nation of Israel God promised that all the other nations of the earth would be blessed. Seventhly, Israel was the one through whom the fathers or the patriarchs would come. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They were the people of God's choice. The line through whom God would work out his purposes in the world. And then eighthly, on top of all of that, the Apostle Paul says that as far as his human ancestry was concerned, Jesus Christ came from the Jewish people. 
Now he puts all of this together and he says that Israel were uniquely privileged people of God. They were the ones with these glorious opportunities and in, and in the eternal and sovereign purposes of God, God chose them to be his special people, to be on the centre stage amongst all the other nations. And yet the tragedy is, as the Apostle Paul says, they have rejected Jesus. They have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected the gospel. And so therefore this great heavy burden rests upon Paul, a Jew, who himself had come to know Christ as Messiah and Saviour. And so the question that he now has to answer is this. Could these chosen people, could these unique people, could the people of God who've rejected Christ, what, could, what would happen to them? In rejecting Christ, would, could God reject them? Or was Paul wrong about all of this? Was his message wrong? Well, he answers the question very emphatically in verse 6. He says, not as though the word of God had taken none effect. In other words, it's not true that the word of God has failed. It is not true that the word of God concerning the nation of Israel, the covenants, the promises, the gospel... Words from God, it's not true that any of this has failed. The point that Paul makes very firmly here is that <clears throat> the word of God is not invalidated. Now the word of God specifically in this context means the purposes and the plans of God. Israel had rejected their Messiah. The question is, had God, has God's plans come unglued? Have the wheels fallen off the divine purpose? Is the whole thing coming apart at the seams? Have the chosen people gone off the rails and therefore God has to go completely back to the drawing board? Paul says, no, 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 no. God forbid. God's word is sure. He will keep his promises. He will keep his covenants. And whether Israel cooperates or not, God can, will continue to work out his purposes as he always has. Notice the examples that he gives in verse 7. He talks about them being descendants from Abraham. Now the Bible makes it very clear that God, that Abraham was chosen by God. Not chosen to be saved. Okay? He was chosen by God out of the Ur of the Chaldees way before he was justified. His justification was something completely different. Paul goes, speaks about it in a great deal in Romans chapter 4. He believed God and was counted in for righteousness. But years before that, God chose him, called him to be the father of the Jewish nation. God could have equally have chosen Abraham's father, Terah, or he could have equally chosen Abraham's nephew, Lot. But he didn't choose Terah. And he didn't choose Lot. Why not? Well, God doesn't tell us why. He tells us why he saved Abraham. Because Abraham believed was counted him for righteousness. He tells us why he saved Abraham. But he doesn't tell us why he chose Abraham to be the father of the Jewish nation. God is perfectly free to choose the one and the ones through whom he will work out his eternal purposes in the world. God has always done this. Subsequently, God said to Abraham, look at the stars in the sky and consider the sands upon the seashore and your progeny will be as numerous. And Abraham says, well, we, I see a problem here. 
is because I'm 100 years old and I don't have one child yet. And the Lord says, don't worry about that, leave that to me. But the thing is, Abraham and Sarah did worry about it and they didn't leave it to God. And what they did was what local people in that time would do, and that is if the wife was fertile, infertile, beg your pardon, then the wife would give her servant girl to her husband and she would become a surrogate mother. And she produced a child and Ishmael was the result. And God's got, God said, no, 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 it's not Ishmael. And later on, in a miraculous way, Isaac was born. And God chose Isaac and didn't choose Ishmael. And it's exactly the same way that God chose Abraham and didn't choose Terah or Lot. Subsequently, as God works out his purposes, we find that Rachel has twins in her womb. And the normal way, according to human tradition back in that time, was that the firstborn would be the one through whom the line of descent would come. But God is not subject to human traditions. Jacob is second born. Esau was first born. And God said, it is Jacob that I have called. It is through Jacob that my purposes will be worked out. Abraham, not Terah. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And here we come across a very, very difficult verse, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That's a direct quotation out of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And people say, do you mean to say that God looked down from heaven and he said, he looks at Jacob and he says, I love Jacob and I look at Esau and I say, I can't stand, I hate Esau. Do you mean to say that God loved Jacob before he was born and God hated Esau before he was born? Is God like that? No. To suggest that is to make a caricature of God. Two things need to be understood. Number one, in Malachi chapter 1, the verse that is quoted here, Malachi chapter 1, when it talks about Jacob and Esau, it's talking about their descendants. It's talking about their tribes. It's talking about the nations that will come from them. That's the context. That is being quoted here in Romans. Secondly, remember also that the Bible does use figures of speech. One such figure of speech is hyperbole. An example of that is you remember that the Lord Jesus explained that no one could be his disciples unless they hated their mother and their father. And you say, well, hang on a minute. Jesus is the one who told us to love our neighbour. As we love ourselves. And you mean to say that we have to love our neighbours but we have to hate our mother and our father. That's hyperbole. That's hyperbole. It's exaggerating something to get the point across. To, to push it to an extreme. To make the point. And Jesus certainly made the point. He got his point across. The point was this. If you're going to be my disciple then you have to put me ahead of everyone and everything. Even those things which are nearest and dearest to you. And it's the same figure of speech which is being used here. As far as their place in God's plan, as far as their purpose, as far as God is concerned, Jacob is the one that he puts ahead of Esau. And Jacob and his people he brings to the fore. And Esau and his people, his tribes, the ones he puts to the side. It's got nothing to do with individual salvation. It's to do with God's purposes and plans being worked out through the nations of the world. The point is this. That God has always worked out his purposes by choosing to 
act through people as he wills. Nothing has changed, the Apostle Paul says. Nothing has changed. For in exactly the same way that Abraham took centre stage and Terah and Lot were put off to the side, exactly the same way that Isaac takes centre stage and Ishmael is put off to the side, in exactly the same way that Esau is put off to the side and Jacob takes centre stage, so remarkably the Jewish people having now rejected the gospel, are put to the side and the Gentile nations of all people are put on centre stage because they are the ones who are responding to the message. There is nothing unusual, the Apostle Paul says, in seeing God working through the Gentiles as the people of Israel reject the message in exactly the same way as he consistently showed that he will work out his purposes with those who respond positively to the message. Brethren, let's always remember that God's plans don't come unglued. And always remember that God is never taken by surprise by what people might do. And let's always remember that God is working relentlessly towards the consummation of all of his eternal purposes. And he will work. And as he works, he will work through people whom he chooses to work through according as they will respond to what he's doing. Now he says the word of God has not failed. Purposes and plans of God have not come unglued. But now he deals with the fourth point here in verses 14 through 19. As we look at this experience of Israel's rejection of Christ, Paul shows how the sovereignty of God is illuminated. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Why would he ask such a question? Well, for the obvious reason is that if you look at this passage and say, you know, do you, do you mean to say that God arbitrarily chose Jacob and arbitrarily rejected Esau even before they were born? That's not fair. God's not fair. He is unrighteous. Paul says, no, no, that's not the case. God forbid. It's not the case at all. Now, what we need to understand here is that many Jewish people believe that to be a member of the nation of Israel, to be a Jewish person, meant that you were automatically, eternally blessed. If by an accident of birth you were born Jewish, then many people believe, many Jewish people believe that automatically, doesn't matter what you did, you were guaranteed eternal blessedness simply because you were born Jewish. And by the same token, if by an accident of birth you were born Gentile, then it didn't matter what you did. You were born eternally not to be blessed. So this was the thinking of many Jewish people in Paul's day. And this was the thinking of the people that, that Paul was dealing with. He tried to get the gospel to them. And for Paul to even preach a message which the Jews rejected and the Gentiles accepted, that was in total opposition to the Jewish thinking that if you're Jewish, you're in. If they're Gentile, you're out. And to suggest that some Gentiles were out and some, sorry, some, some Jewish people were out and some Gentile people were in, according to the Jewish mind, that's, that's completely unrighteous with God that he would do such a thing. God would be unjust to do such a thing. No, says the Apostle Paul, God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. And he is these things because he chooses to be these things towards People. And he gives two illustrations. 
First of all, the illustration of Moses, verse 15. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, it doesn't depend on man's desire or man's effort. It depends upon God's mercy. And God didn't have anyone twist his arm and say, hey, you have to be merciful. God, out of his own sovereign free choice, chose, chooses to be merciful. And we see that in the experience of Moses. Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. God has revealed that they have a special relationship to them. His law is given to them to help them understand how that they can have this special relationship with him. In this special relationship with him, the Lord tells them they are to love God and they are to love their neighbours as they love themselves. And then there are ten commandments to give them more detail about how that is to be worked out in practice. And while Moses is up the top of the mountain getting all of these instructions, the children of Israel are down there in the plain having a spiritual revival, waiting for the wonderful giving of the law. Right? Wrong. If you read, you read, you read your Bible, you know exactly that's not what they were doing. They'd made a golden calf. They were engaging in idolatry. They were committing acts of sexual immorality. And Moses coming down from the mountain alive and aglow with his mountaintop experience with God comes down, he sees the people, he can't believe what he's seeing. God has uniquely blessed these people, he's uniquely given them an opportunity and yet at the very moment that he's blessing and at the very moment he's giving them this opportunity, they're casting God's grace back in his face. And Moses is so angry that he hurls down the two tablets of the, the law to the ground, he shatters them in pieces and in a literal sense, the law is, the covenant is broken. What does God do now? What is God going to do now? God says, as a paraphrase, I've had it with these people. I've had it up to here with these people. I brought them out of Egypt. I brought them out of bondage. I've provided for them a wonderful promised land. I've had nothing but trouble with them. I've had it up to here with the children of Israel. We should just get rid of them. But in answer to Moses' prayer, God chose to be merciful. God chose to be merciful. And God said to Moses, Moses, come back up the top of the mountain again. And well, it's hard to believe, but uh, God in his mercy and his grace just, just went through the whole procedure again. Gave the law all over again. He didn't have to, but he chose to be merciful. People of Israel didn't deserve it. God didn't have an obligation to them. God was merciful because in his freedom and in his sovereignty, he chose to be merciful to keep Israel on center stage. While he was up the top of the mountain, Moses said, Lord, I know how you feel about these people because I feel the same way too. I've had it with them as well. So therefore, if you could please show me your glory. If you would just show me your glory, then that would sort of, you know, really encourage me again. And if I have a, a good dose of your glory, that will help me to put up with these people, maybe for another 40 years. God says, no. Moses says, you know, Lord, please do it. Let me see your glory. And God says, no, but I'll tell you what I will do. I'll let you have a little glimpse of it. And Moses says, why just a little glimpse? And God says, I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. 
And Moses says, you know, Lord, what's so merciful about you not showing me your glory? And the Lord said, it's merciful because if I showed you my glory, you'd be destroyed on the spot. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to just show you a little glimpse of it that will encourage you and not destroy you. Moses says, why are you doing that? And the Lord says, because I'm merciful. Why are you being merciful? Because I choose to be merciful, Moses. Why are you dealing with the children of Israel in this way and not wiping out them? It's because, the Lord says, because I'm merciful. Why are you being merciful to them? It's because I choose to be merciful. And the whole history of Israel is that God is merciful because he chooses to be merciful. Nobody makes him do it. Nobody twists his arm. Nobody beats him over the head. God freely, choosing to act as he will, freely chooses to act mercifully as always he has done. As he always has done. But there is a flip side to this as well. He goes on to explain this in verse 17. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Have you noticed that? God has mercy on those that he chooses to have mercy on and he hardens those that he chooses to harden. You read a verse like that and sort of sends chills down your spine a bit. What happened with Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh had the children of Israel in captivity down there in Egypt and God saw the burdens that they were under and he sent Moses to Pharaoh with this message, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, sure, no problem. But he reneged. And so God said, Moses, don't worry about Pharaoh. I can handle him. And God sent a plague. And Pharaoh said, take away the plague and I'll let the people go. And so God took away the plague. And Pharaoh said, ha ha, I didn't mean it. And he reneged. So God sent another plague saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, sure, I'll let them go. Just take away the plague. And so God took the plague away, but he didn't let the people go. And every time... Pharaoh promised to let the people go. He reneged and he hardened his heart. And it began to compound on him. He hardened his heart and he hardened his heart and he hardened his heart. And the scripture tells us 10 times, 10 times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God being perfectly free to do as he wills, decided to do something. He decided that he would be merciful to those who would be to whom he would be merciful. And he also decided this, that if people would go on and refuse his mercy, if people would go on hardening their heart against him, if people would go and not listen to what he said and not obey and not yield, refusing to listen to him, then in the end God says, okay, well, I will further harden your heart. Nobody told him to do that. Nobody forced him to do that. Nobody hit him over the head, twisted his arm. He freely chose and chooses to do that. And God has shown down through the years that he's absolutely sovereign, perfectly free to, to deal with human beings as he sees fit. Showing mercy to those who will respond positively to his message and for those who perpetually etern- uh, and, and enduringly refuse to listen. God of his own free choice chooses to let them go on in their ways and establish them in their ways. 
Notice that he doesn't set Pharaoh up and say, okay, Pharaoh, you don't know this, but I have born you and I have brought you into this world and organized for you to become Pharaoh so that I can zap you and that I can be glorified that way. Again, that's not what God's saying. It's not what God did. What it's saying is this, that God allowed this man, whom he could have wiped off the face of the earth as easily as he could have wiped off the children of Israel from the face of the earth with the golden calf incident, but he allows both of them to go on, patiently dealing with them, giving them opportunities for repentance. And if they don't respond, if they do not respond, if they will not respond, then God freely chooses to harden those who persistently harden their own hearts and to be merciful, to show mercy to those who will respond to his message. And so when the nation of Israel, in the days of Paul, consistently persistently reject and consistently and persistently harden their own hearts against the gospel and God shows that he's being consistent as ever he has been and as ever he continues to he's, he's always done it like this but when an individual when an individual Jew like Saul of Tarsus responds positively to the message of the gospel. God has already de determined that he will show mercy to those people who respond positively to his message. And so it was, and so it is, and so it ever will be. Question. Have you ever thought through that God is perfectly free to deal with you as he chooses. He has given you the opportunity of responding positively to the message of Christ. He's given you the opportunity to respond negatively to the message of Christ. To resist the message of Christ. He's given you that opportunity. But he hasn't given you the opportunity to choose the consequences of rejecting Christ. You're perfectly free to choose what you do with Christ, but you're not perfectly free to choose the consequences of rejecting Christ. God chooses to be merciful to those who are responding. God chooses to harden those who reject. You decide to respond or you decide to resist. The final point that he brings up here we see the consistency of God illustrated. Verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? And of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour. Again, we're not talking about individual salvation here. We're talking about nations. We're talking about the outworking God purposes. We're talking about the people who, through whom God will work. Here we have a picture of God and man. Remember, it's a picture. It is a picture. God is the potter. Man is the clay. And some people get a hold of this and they push it to an extreme that was never intended Clay is not human. Humans are not clay. Clay can't do anything. The potter spins it and it spins. The potter squeezes it and it's squeezed. The potter stretches it and it's stretched. 
Clay simply has to do what the potter determines. There's no sense of accountability. There's no will. There's no intelligence. There's no responsibility. There's no emotion at all in clay. And so don't push the picture further than it's intended to go. What the picture is intended to show is this. That God is perfectly consistent in his dealings. And that he is the one who will decide, as we've already seen, to be merciful to whom he will be merciful or to harden those who will resist related to a person's response to him. He is perfectly consistent in his dealings with people. But he goes on something else in verse 22. He says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath before prepared under glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. Here the Apostle Paul takes us back into the Old Testament again to the minor prophet Hosea. Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful. Unfaithful Gomer begat three children. Their names are very, very important. Jezreel means judgment. Lo Ruama means not loved. Lo Ami means not my people. Fancy being saddled with names like that. But we have to remember that the prophet gives these names in order that they might convey a message to the people. Hosea had married an unfaithful wife. It pictures Jehovah married to unfaithful Israel. And the people watch Hosea as he deals with his unfaithful wife. And as he deals with his unfaithful wife, they begin to understand how God is dealing with unfaithful Israel. The love and the mercy and the compassion of a faithful husband to an unfaithful wife. They begin to understand how the Lord is working, how he's faithful with his people, even though they be unfaithful to him. And they begin to see what's happening. That God, out of this arrangement, is bringing judgment to those who do deserve it. But he's also calling those who are not his people and those who are not loved by a previous covenant loving relationship. And this, of course, is a, is a statement about what is God, God is doing through his purposes in Christ. The Gentiles previously not loved, the Gentiles previously not my people are being brought in while others who did have the privilege and the opportunity, the nation of Israel, for example, are coming under the judgment of God because they have been unfaithful and they refuse and they reject. God is being, being consistent in his dealings with people. He's utterly devoted to his principles. He will work, work, work his eternal purposes through the responses of people. Verse 30. What shall we say? Where does all this lead us? The fact of the matter is that Paul is preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching this message that has been largely rejected by the people of Israel. There have been some who have responded positively, yes, but far more Gentiles. What conclusion can we reach on this? 
Here is his conclusion, verse 30. That the Gentiles, which have not followed after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Why is it that the Gentiles, rather than the Jews, generally speaking, have responded to the message of Christ? The answer is because the Jewish people got hooked up by the law. They had this idea, they still have this idea that if you keep the law, if you are good enough, you'll be justified by the works of the law. But Paul has just spent eight chapters showing the impossibility of that. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Well, what then is our hope? Our hope is that we can be justified freely by his grace through Christ. Not what I can do merits salvation. It is what Christ has done for me and offers me freely by grace. If I work at it, if I have to work at it, I'll never make it. And that was Israel's mistake. But if I admit that I cannot make it, if I humbly receive the word of God, if I humbly receive the message of what Christ has done for me through his death and resurrection, if I receive God's message, then I will be justified. I will be forgiven. I will be reconciled freely by his grace. There's nothing new about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Way back in the Old Testament, the Lord says, verse 33, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him, whosoever believeth in him, shall not be ashamed. The rock is Christ. And Christ stands at the centre of history. He came and lived a perfect life. He died upon the cross, assuming our sin we can't achieve forgiveness of any of our sin, but God judged our sin in Christ. And now he freely offers us forgiveness and reconciliation and newness of life. And as the message of Christ and the message of the cross has been preached down through the centuries, some have tried to figure it out and some have tried to analyze it and some have tried to dissect it, but many people have stumbled over it. Stumbled over it. But there are others who said, Christ is my only hope. I'm not justified by the works of the Lord. I can only be justified freely by his grace and I take my stand on him. And I'm justified not by the works of the Lord. I'm justified freely by his grace. Israel, by and large, has stumbled over Christ, the rock. Yet many people have taken their stand on him. Question. Is it possible for those people, particular people, peculiar people, chosen nation? Is it possible that this nation through whom God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world will be moved off center stage? The answer is yes. Why? Because God is totally committed 
to working out his purposes. He will be merciful to those who will respond. He will harden those who resist. The principle is Christ and his cross as the only means of salvation. And whosoever believeth in him, whether they be Jews or whether they be Gentiles, whosoever believeth in him shall receive mercy. Whosoever believeth in him shall be forgiven. Those who reject him will stumble. Those who take their stand on him will be secure. The question is, is, have you stumbled over Christ? Or have you taken your stand with him? Are you standing on Christ? Is Christ, is Christ the right, is he the solid rock upon which you stand for your eternal salvation? This is the glorious message that goes out to the whole world, Jew and Gentile, individuals from every nation. What is the future of the nation of Israel? They've been put off to the side at the moment, no question about, no doubt about that. Is there a point at which they come back centre stage, the, 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 the floodlight of God it shines upon them once Again, is, is that the case? Will that happen? Will, will the covenants he made with them be fulfilled literally? The promises may, he's made with them, with them, will they all be fulfilled to the letter of the law? Paul talks about that in Romans 10. He talks about that in Romans chapter 11. And at the end of that, Paul is in awe of the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God, how this can possibly be. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, his ways past finding out. He bows in worship at a great God who can take care of all of these things, whether people cooperate with him or not. God has everything under his sovereign control and plan. It's a remarkable thing. But today the message is going out to individuals, Jew and Gentile, people in this room, everyone in this room. The, the message goes out again. Christ and only Christ, your hope of salvation. Have you stumbled at him? Or have you taken your stand? Will you take your stand in him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that the plan was worked out before the foundation of the world. Thank you that in the fullness of time he came. Virgin born, lived a sinless life, died a a substitutionary atoning death upon the cross rose again so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous. This is all the grace of God. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful message of the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to understand it, to appreciate it, to love it. Lord, we do pray for our evangelism. Lord, help us to be deeply concerned about people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. Lord, give us a heart similar to the heart of the Apostle Paul, greatly burdened for those who know not the saviour. Lord, give us great boldness in proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, one saviour for all men, one sacrifice upon the cross for all sin. Lord, may we love the message, fill our hearts with joy because of the message, the eternal salvation that we have in Christ. And Lord, may your purposes continue to be worked out through us as those who respond positively to your message. Please continue to use us as your instruments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.